the great thing about technology is that it's exponential, the rate of change. And so I think it's going to take people a little bit by surprise when AI and these big data things kick in. People at the moment are kind of in a little bit of a skeptical mode. It's been around and talked about for so long that um, that's been kind of flying under the radar, the amount of progress that's just being made. And at the moment, you know, I think it's about to have a breakout and we're going to enter this kind of zone of surprise where people are going to discover that the exponential rate of change is going to be quite surprising. Greg O'Grady, welcome to the Scope Forward show. I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here on your podcast. So Greg, let me outline your background. So you're the CEO and co-founder of Elimetri, and you're a professor in general and gastrointestinal surgery at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. So thanks so much for joining. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your background and what led to the founding of your company. It's a long story. So elementary for your, for your listeners, we, we build wearable medical devices to diagnose gut disorders. And the sort of problems we're really interested in are these disorders of function, sort of like the software of the gut, how it behaves and works and moves. So my clinical background is in surgery, and I've been really interested in these difficult patients who often suffer a great deal with gastrointestinal symptoms and very hard to pin down a diagnosis on them at the moment. There's a real lack of good tests out there. So I became very interested in these problems in the gut um, from my practice. And then I've done a lot of research on the gut and especially in the electrical function of the gut. And my interest in technology really led to the genesis of this company. And ultimately, yeah, elementary as it is today. So this research, can you talk a little bit more about this? What kind of research and why electrical signals of the gut? Has this been known for a long time or is this something relatively new that we know as an industry or a scientific community? It really has been known for a long time, but it's not well known. So, you know, it's been actually almost exactly 100 years since the electrical activity of the gut was discovered. And in that time, you know, the guy who discovered it, Alvarez, 100 years ago, he actually made what he called his little prophecy that one day gastroenterologists would come to use electrical tools, just like cardiologists would to diagnose gut function. And really, it never happened, despite a lot of effort. It wasn't for a lack of effort over a lot of years that people really tried. But it's difficult to measure these electrical currents. You know, just like the heart, the stomach has a pacemaker and it's got an electrical system that drives the contractions of the muscles. But those signals, they're 100 times weaker than you'd get in the heart. So it's quite difficult to measure them from the body surface like you would for the heart. So a lot of my research is, and, and my team's research and colleagues has been about tackling that very technical problem of how to measure these weak signals and bring them up to the body surface in a reliable way that we can, we can measure them accurately and provide a, a useful clinical tool. Let's get to the basics, you know, a little bit. What is the stomach using the electrical signals for? We know what the heart does with it, but uh, what does the stomach or the, the gut or the digestive system use it for? Yeah, it's, it's relatively similar. So the, uh, the electrical waves 
drive the contractions so that the muscle cells need that electrical signal to stimulate them to contract. And it should be nice and regular with a, a rhythmic digestive wave that happens in your stomach every 20 seconds or so after you eat. But just like in the heart, you can get arrhythmias where it becomes really irregular or um, fibrillation type activities, we call it in the heart. You can get similar dysrhythmias occurring in the stomach that become very disorganized. And it's those types of signals that we're aiming to measure. And similar as well, you can get these ectopic pacemakers where the waves of the stomach start traveling in the wrong direction. And it's these signals that we pick up and they correlate with diseases and with symptoms. What kind of diseases? Really common ones. So about one in 10 people would carry around with them some gut symptoms after they eat. And maybe half the time that might be coming from the stomach, things like chronic indigestion, functional dyspepsia, we call it in gastro, gastroenterology, um, or um, gastroparesis where the stomach doesn't pump or empty properly, and nausea and vomiting. These are kind of the main things that we're interested in. How big is this problem globally or you know, in the US? Yeah, really common. Yeah, about one in 10 globally, wherever you go, it's a little bit higher than that um, in some places. And for some reason, we don't fully understand. It's been increasing at about 3.5% per year over the last 20 years. These uh, distress after eating is just becoming more and more common. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge burden, a huge amount of suffering and, and health cost out there that goes into these problems. What happens today when a patient suffers from digestive disorders such as gastroparesis? Uh, how is it diagnosed or how does one know? Is it just a patient complaint? I would probably say it's one of the most challenging areas in all of internal medicine because we lack a really good description of this disease. We lack a way to diagnose it and patients turn up and often, you know, it's not uncommon for them to undergo months or even years of a kind of diagnostic odyssey where they're kind of bouncing around and they often undergo multiple tests that are always negative or inconclusive, it can be a really long diagnostic journey. Not uncommon, in, at least in my part of the world, for it to be five years or so before they kind of reach some sort of finish line on their diagnosis. And in that time, there's a lot of suffering that they go through, actually. And also the clinicians find it a real struggle to manage these disorders. So it's not quite as bad for indigestion type symptoms. But again, there's a lot of negative testing that goes on. <laughs> yeah, and a, and a battle for the clinicians. Yeah. Let's talk about Alimetri. So what does the device and the product or your solution, what do you do? We measure this electrical activity of the gut from the body surface. So it's completely non-invasive, which is really nice. A lot of gut tests, you know, they involve tubes or radiation and can be a bit unpleasant, but it's really nice to have a non-invasive test. So the patient comes in fasted and, and they sit in the chair during the test. We prep the skin and we place on their skin a wearable device. And that wearable device is where the real innovation is. It's a high resolution device, meaning it has a lot of sensors on it. It's got 66 electrodes. And it's so many because we these signals are so weak and they're so difficult to detect accurately and reliably that we really pull everything we can out from the gut um, with this huge number of sensors that we that we put on. It's completely wearable and it's completely wireless and it's a sticky patch that goes on over their abdomen. And then they eat a meal and they log their symptoms into an app we've developed so that we can correlate the changes that are going on in the gut with their symptoms during the test and 
we get all that data, it goes up to a cloud and we send back a report to the clinicians so that they can interpret that with the patient and guide care. Let's talk about the electrical signals a little bit more. So I saw, you know, what the device looks like and it's quite fascinating. You said it's capturing all these weak electrical signals and then I'm assuming you're amplifying it. But could you categorize the type of these signals? We put all these signals together and we form them into visual tools that the clinician can use. Um, so not like an ECG where the clinician would look at the individual waveforms, we kind of process them into the next level of doing these maps and visualizations. And those show you um, a few things like whether the, the rhythm is regular, which should happen in the stomach, or whether it's very scattered and irregular and really breaking down and breaking apart. And that indicates a neuromuscular problem with the stomach, that these nerves and cells that should be driving the contractions are failing. So that's something that we can pick out with this test, for example. Or we can pick out when um, these rhythms or, or waves become spatially irregular. So they start doing the wrong thing or traveling in the wrong direction, which can, can lead to a different set of symptoms like uh, bloating and pain after eating. And these sensors are housed in the device that is attached or uh, spread you know, throughout the white patch, the adhesive patch that you're applying over the abdomen. Yeah, so it's quite a cool technology. It's a printed stretchable circuit. So we, we print these circuits, like you might screen print a t-shirt, for example, and we screen print these electrodes all over that patch so that we've got a very high density. And then on top of that, we put hydrogel pads so that you can, just like an ECG dot, so you can really extract that weak signal and an adhesive. So you peel it off and you stick it on and on that are all these individual electrodes that come together to form the patch. Fascinating. Let's talk about the business, uh, Greg. Like, So you got started in uh, 2019? Yeah, we started in 2019, although going back, we'd actually had maybe 10 years of um, pretty serious research going on mm -hmm. in order to kind of learn how to do this. And it really wasn't until 2019 that that matured enough for us to think, oh, this is actually really exciting. And we're kind of compelled to bring this out to the world and a product and a company to, as a vehicle to do that. So yeah, it took a long time, you know, maybe a hundred scientific articles were out there before we found the tricks to get it right. Yeah, it was really hard. Interesting. Can you share a little bit about uh, the funding situation? Did you raise money? How did you go about it? Or why did investors fund it? I'm curious about that too. We're a university spin-out company and the University of Auckland, like a lot of universities, have a really nice uh, tech transfer process. And so we spun out of the university, not only the IP and you know the technology, the patents and the algorithms, but we also spun out a team of really capable engineers with us as well and so we we kind of carried that lab out of the university and into a commercial vehicle which was a really exciting time and a university also kind of do a matchmaking process to introduce you to investors who are interested in these deep technology projects um, with really rich ip coming out of universities and so we met a great investor called ip group who came out of australia actually from a uk office and um, in our most recent round, another great investor called Movac led that round. And we've got a university in Matu, a few others that came together to form a syndicate to really back a, a great New Zealand technology that had come out of that academic environment 
into the real world, so to speak. Uh, why not stay with your part of the world? Why uh, approach the FDA and the US and uh, why are you looking at the US market? Yeah, yeah, New Zealand's a, a beautiful place to live and uh, it's a really nice country, but it's a super small country, as you as you may know. So you know, the total population of New Zealand um, could fit inside a lot of cities in the US or uh, even in the UK. So yeah, so it's about getting this technology to the world. And for us, the US is a super attractive market. There's a lot of problem with these diseases everywhere, but the US is certainly not alone in that. So, and, and we've got a great relationship with expert gastroenterologists and research centers that we've had for a long time there. So we're very comfortable in the US and it's, you know, we love going there. So that's a great market and a lot of fun, actually. What is the business model for Alimentary, particularly in the US? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty traditional business model for a diagnostic like you would a pill cam or other GI function tests that, that are done. So there's a, a kit that you buy and purchase and set up with your hospital, and that's got the reader device and so on. And then there's the consumable, which is the patch. Once it's used, it's sticky and unfortunately can't be reused. So that's a consumable product that then the company sells for each use. And uh, who would pay for it? Yeah, so again, it's very traditional out there in the market for patients coming through. At the moment, these tests, obviously one of the challenges for a medical device startup, other than getting through the regulatory, is getting through that reimbursement journey is um, a major challenge for companies. We're lucky in some respects in that there was an attempt to do this for quite a while out there a predicate technology. And so there is a reimbursement code, for example, in the US, and there's a device that used to exist wasn't particularly uh, successful. And so it's about now for our company getting out there, showing people really what it can do and how useful it is. And that will lead to adoption and use as clinicians find it useful and patients have successful outcomes. And on the back of that, we'll, we'll look to put that reimbursement piece of the puzzle into place so that it's easier for people to do the test and get paid for it. So uh, private GI practice could potentially bill for it, buy the device, bill for it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are you seeing this to be a platform of some sort, your view on the direction of where you're going uh, with the business? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, I do. Um, we're very focused on the stomach in particular because it's such an interesting organ that generates so many problems and it's relatively easier than other parts of the gut to measure. Um, but we're very interested in, for example, the colon is a very interesting organ that you can also measure from the body surface. It's not as easy and it kind of turns on and off and it does a, a bigger range of things, but, and it's, um, but that's another possibility. And also I think the whole field is ripe, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation in this part of the gut and this part of the body. And we're at the dawn of um, this age of really exciting sensors and wearable technologies and data and AI. And it's really ripe for a whole um, innovative suite of products to come along and companies to come along and make the most of this and, you know, make a big difference in the process. Are you familiar with companies similar to yours, uh, perhaps not in gastroenterology, but, you know, other specialties? Uh, that are trying to capture electrical signals and do something with it. Uh, let's forget cardiology for a moment, but other than that, and, and of course the brain. 
Well, the heart and the brain are the two organs that are, are most obviously electrical, but a lot of other smooth muscles are in the body um, and skeletal muscles and things, I guess. But yeah, the, the heart is what we look at. The wearable patch is the companies that are doing it very successfully and a very mature technology. The brain is interesting. A lot of companies, even commercial companies, you see them pitching to consumers, measuring brain waves in various interesting ways. Super cool companies, some of them. So yeah, you know, we love that space. It's really exciting to see what people do with all types of wearables. We're data geeks and we love that measured self, those um, different senses you can wear in your body to, to tell what your body's doing. And, you know, it's, it's exciting for us to be part of that kind of community. We're a medical device company, but we do see ourselves as part of that wearable data-driven trend. If that is so, then uh, why did you focus on going the route of getting reimbursed, working with clinicians? Why not allow it to be a consumer device? First, because there's such a compelling need in the medical space. And as a clinician, um, I find that really compelling that we can fill a, a gap, that a diagnostic hole that's been a, a real, real major problem for a long time and provide some fresh answers and fresh approaches. Um, and also, you know, the consumer market is, it's about the use case. It might be interesting to measure your gut, but will it improve your life possibly? Um, there's a big question mark there. You know, there's a lot of companies out there um, looking at diets and um, opportunities. People very interested to know what effect different diets have in their gut, for example. Um, a lot of people react to different foods, but can we provide that solution ourselves? I'm not sure yet. It's a really interesting question, but um, but we're 100% focused on medical for now because, because that makes total sense. Um, but consumer would be interesting, if not us, for someone else to do in future. So is your product currently commercial or when is it going to launch? It's available, yeah. It's available in New Zealand and the UK and the US. And um, we're in market here in New Zealand. Um, early but you know we are and and in the us and the uk we're, we're about to be have our first commercial sites going as well and we've had a ton of interest actually which has been really nice so we're busy scaling up the manufacturing and getting our processes in line and yeah it's a it's a very exciting time if a gi doctor is interested in buying your product how would they go about doing so today yeah well we meet a lot of them at conferences and, and through our networks because it's um people kind of the early adopters super interested in these disorders and patients. Um, our website's available as well, that people can go and have a look at what we're doing at elementary.com and, and see the device and they'll get a good, a good view from that, whether it's something they're interested in or not, and reach out to us and we'd, we'd love to work with them. So if you start viewing yourself into the future, like let's forward one year from now, three years from now, five years from now, how do you see the progression you know, for Allometry? You know, these new technologies, they go through a number of stages. And what we really want to do, being clinician-led as a company and um, having seen these patients a lot myself, what we're really driven to do is to change the standard of care and to offer something that is genuinely answering the needs of the clinical community. and. You know, I'm as much a customer of that as I am the provider. So I feel that pain really strongly and identify with it. So what we're hoping to do is to make meaningful change. And that will naturally lead 
lead to adoption if we can become, you know, the standard of care and provide those answers that are lacking for at least some of these um, patients. And if we do that, then everything else will fall into place for us um, commercially. And so that's the road we're on. And, and so far, so good. You know, we've got some really exciting data coming out very soon that, you know, is, is I think going to get a lot of attention. Talking about the data that you've captured so far, what have you learned you know, from all this data, from the analysis? I know you're doing individual analysis and providing it to the physician, uh, but are you doing any analysis uh, from all all the data that you're accumulating and uh, what have you learned from it? Yeah, you know, one reason it's an exciting field is because there is so much to learn. Um, it's not like the heart, which is so well characterized that um, it's really hard to learn something new from conducting normal studies. So even studying normal, healthy people for us, we can learn a lot. Um, we've generated hundreds of patients now, many hundreds, and we've managed to formulate these what we call reference ranges where we kind of really understand what the normal digestive pattern is after eating, what the normal amplitude of these contractions are and so on. And to put kind of a, a real circle around, that's normal. So now when we study these diseases, we can kind of start to put now the diseases into these what we call phenotypes or boxes that fall outside normal and, and quite um, specific patterns. And the beauty of having the app is that we can pull the symptoms that are simultaneously being collected and then make these deep correlations with big data sets to work out what symptoms are associated with what patterns and what patients. And that's something that will only get better as, as the data um, flows and grows so that we can really learn how to make the best of this tool. So when you look at these uh, big data sets and when you're categorizing these phenotypes, what are they telling you? Like, you know, are you seeing with certain conditions, a certain phenotype? Are you seeing, you know, somebody is obese or overweight? Are you seeing a different type of phenotype? Somebody's got a healthy gut. Are you seeing a different type of phenotype? I'm curious what you're learning at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you about the, the, I did tell you about that neuromuscular one where things become very irregular, but you mentioned overweight and, you know, that's something we've discovered very recently from looking at a large number of cases is that in our data so far, we've just put this out on MedArchive actually as a preprint, but if you have uh, people with a higher BMI, their digestive time seems to be accelerated in their stomach. So their stomach seems to be processing and working at a, at a, at a faster rate over a shorter period of time after eating. And we think, you know, this is um, a whole bunch of healthy, normal people, but with a range of weights. And so, for example, from this example, we think that um, one of the drivers for them being more overweight, maybe that they feel hungrier quicker because their stomach is processed, moved on, emptied, and they don't have that same satiety that you and I might get from eating. Um, so they, they go back to snacking, for example. Um, that's... One hypothesis that's come out of seeing that data with the patients with the higher BMI really having accelerated gastric time. Greg, I'm curious to know uh, what your take is on the future of gastroenterology or perhaps medicine as a whole uh, from the lens that you're seeing. It's an exciting time. You know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but I'm a big believer that the um, that we're about to go and undergo some major changes. And the great thing about technology is that it's exponential, the rate of change. And so I think it's going to take people a little bit by surprise um, when 
AI and these big data things kick in, people at the moment are kind of in a little bit of a skeptical mode. It's been around and talked about for so long that um, that's been kind of flying under the radar, the amount of progress that's just being made. And at the moment, you know, I think it's about to have a breakout and we're going to enter this kind of zone of surprise where people are going to discover that the exponential rate of change is going to be quite surprising and gastroenterology won't be spared from that. We're already seeing the advent of AI and endoscopy and it won't be long until that data, power of data really spills out into other areas of gastroenterology as well as, yeah. So, you know, it's a super exciting time and, and I love being on the side of it where, we, where we're promoting and, and bringing that change. It's certainly where we want to head as a company as well. Uh, so, what if somebody is not on the side that you're playing, and is on the, <laughs> you know, is on the other side in, in the endoscopy room day and night, and uh, they're in that world, uh, and you're saying it'll catch them by surprise? You know, are they going to be totally disrupted? Like, what's your take? I don't think so. You know, it's easy if you're a technology advocate to imagine that clinicians are going to be easily disrupted, but. Being a clinician myself and knowing the amount of um, training and experience and, um, you know, the integrated thinking that goes on when you treat a patient, it's not so easy as replacing a clinician. So that's actually really difficult. But I think our jobs will change in some important ways. And um, we may find ourselves not doing so many repetitive tasks or um, some of our skills may become relatively obsolete. So you know, there'll always be a role for the skilled clinician, but I'm hoping it will, it will be for the better. And maybe we can lose some of the more difficult aspects of medicine around um, the amount of time we spent maybe doing inefficient things or ways to improve what we do, make it less risky, more reliable, and ultimately deliver better care. And that's the future I think will happen. You know, there's kind of a nice tension between the technology always pushing into medicine and medicine kind of pushing back and adapting to that. And I think that struggle will will yield better patient outcomes um, over time. So I'm an optimist. Professor Greg O'Grady, it was fantastic to have this conversation with you. Any final comments before you take off? Yeah, no, thanks for having me on your show. Um, it's been fun, fun to meet you and talk about these things. And yeah, for our listeners who are interested, you know, reach out to our website and be in touch. And um, yeah, we'd, we'd love to work with more gastroenterologists with what we're doing. 